Make Real specializes in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereal.co.uk slash activists. Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. When one of those geeks, Mark Zuckerberg, announced the renaming of his company from Facebook to Meta in 2021, he provoked a surge of interest in the metaverse. But virtual worlds are nothing new, and people have been learning in virtual worlds for well over a decade. This episode explores the thought of those who have tackled the practical and philosophical questions that learning in virtual worlds raises. To be true to the spirit of the subject, Donald and John conducted their discussion inside a virtual world, provided by our sponsor, Make Real. Welcome everybody to this unique and rather strange episode of the podcast. We're in the metaverse. Um, you're going to have to imagine that if you're on the audio podcast. You can always scoot over to YouTube and have a look at us. Uh, we're in a lovely virtual environment provided by our sponsor, Make Real. Donald, it's, it's perhaps stranger for me than for you, as I don't spend quite so much time in virtual worlds. But actually, the sense of bodily disorientation I feel right now, the sense of being in two worlds at once, the real and the virtual, is a part of what we're talking about today. We have a full crop of theorists to discuss. It will involve describing some slightly challenging philosophical speculations of theirs, I expect, but we want to stick close to the relevance for learning. So, Donald, to ground us in the here and now at the start, could you tell us what are some of the existing virtual worlds around at the moment from which it is expected the metaverse will evolve? And maybe you can tackle the thorny question of what we actually mean by the metaverse. Yeah, okay, John. Well, I suppose I'm going to answer that question in a rather odd way because these things, virtual worlds have always been with us since the beginning of language. You know, as soon as you have language, you begin to tell stories and create second worlds. I mean, the major Abrahamic uh, religions, uh, the books are largely about us hanging around in this life, waiting on our avatar to get to the next world, as it were. But I think, you know, realistically, I think the origins, you can tell the oldest ideas by thinking about, you know, the... Uh, during the cognitive revolution about 50,000 years ago, we have these caves and, you know, we deliberately, this member, these were hunter-gatherers, went inside the caves uh, and those were social spaces that were deliberately painted and created. Uh, so the, you know, the idea of a second world has been around for a long time. Then we have 2,000 years of architectural magnificence. If you walk into the Hagia Sophia, you know, 5th, 6th century, you're inside an amazing virtual world almost. They go into the Sistine Chapel, any of those grand buildings. Of course, all these churches, whether it's sacred or secular, are other places which you enter deliberately, very often as portals in a sense, to other virtual worlds. But uh, to come, let's jump, of course, then you have novels. Uh, we can talk about that endlessly, no doubt, as oh, everybody yeah. does. We've got, you know, uh, you have cinema. 
uh, we have television, we have all that, all, all that stuff as well. But if we're talking about actual virtual worlds where people enter in a sense, in that, in that sense, then I think we've been in them for a long time. You know, who doesn't use Google Maps or Google Earth as it was called? And the next iteration of Google Maps indeed will have a, you know, they're basically using AI to, to knit together billions of images so that you can just swoop down virtually right down into Trafalgar Square, for example, uh, smoothly within the world. And in a sense, Google Maps is the entire world as a digital twin. <laughs> and yet we use it without thinking. We have it in our car, it gets around the place, so we exist in that world very often. Beyond that, of course, going way back, we have other things like Microsoft Flight Simulator, which was one of the really early ones, which is still an amazing piece of software. You can actually fly airplanes and get real-time weather delivered. Uh, you know, people do all sorts of mods on, on uh, airports and so on. So that's been going forever and a day, uh, all that simulation type stuff in the airline industry. But I think what really was behind your question is really what leads the worlds where, you know, like the, the millions of people inhabit. And I think what my generation forget is that there are, I mean, there was second, everybody mentioned second life. I'm a bit bored about hearing second life, uh, you know, as if that's a fatal objection, something that happened all those years ago to anything in the future. It's a bit like saying, well, we had the PAM pilot. That was a mess. We're not going to have smartphones, are we? It's a rather odd reference in a way. But if we talk about real, uh, real virtual worlds, I think our generation forgets the fact that there's, you know, there's 100 million people in Fortnite, there's 100 million in Roblox, 100, another 100 million in Minecraft, which has an educational side to it. So these are massive global phenomenon where people with their internal economies, I mean, Fortnite is the biggest fashion retailer on the globe, way beyond Dolce and Gabbana and those people. And all they sell are sort of avatar geared back gaps and, and emotes, these sort of dances and so on. So, you know, this is already here. Virtual worlds are here. The metaverse is not here, but these virtual worlds are certainly here. And then, of course, the big one for me is virtual gaming. So, you, you know, if you go back, I'm old enough to remember when games moved from the 2D world. You know, so uh, John Carmack, very famous programmer, he steps up to the plate. It changes his per perspective in the code. And suddenly we have a 3D world in first Doom and then Quake. And they were literally seismic moments in the games industry, but have been around forever and changed that old games world from 2D into 3D. And hundreds of millions of people live inside those worlds and do amazing things within those worlds. So in, in that sense, I think it's been with us for a long time now. I mean, these things I'm talking about are certainly a decade, 15 years old, if not longer going into the 90s, some of the game stuff. So, you know, what, uh, what's the big deal here? This is, this is real. This is, we're spent, we have, over the last uh, 50,000 years, been spending more and more time in other worlds, whether it's novels, cinema, TV, games, now virtual worlds, with things like VR chat, where there are multiplayer environments where you can go in and meet people and uh, you know, do wacky things. Uh, so it's here. And, of course, I spent an awful lot of time in Google Maps, most of my life in there, in fact. <laughs> but to bring it back to learning, what's the case for learning in the metaverse? And what will it like to be a learner in the metaverse? What will we learn in the metaverse? 
Well, in many ways, there's something odd about learning, isn't there? That it got captured. I mean, Plato put us onto this. He thought that writing was a sort of ending, you know, it's a sort of a very, very dangerous thing in terms of learning because it suddenly we got it very theoretical all of a sudden that everything was text based and you know we're we're suddenly reading and we're not doing. And who would I think the case is enormous now for a shift in learning? We have really over-academicized uh, learning. You know, everybody has to go to university and do these, you know, four, five, six years. Every year there's another year added, master's degrees, PhDs, whatever, is stuck in a sort of, in a sense, a text-based, McLuhan talked about this, a print-based, linear, theoretical world. And who would deny that vocational learning, learning by doing, has been almost abandoned? And look at the mess it's got us into. You know, hardly anything is working because we don't have skills in this middle area, but everybody's got a degree. And so I think the case for education has been growing with people like, uh, well, quite quite clearly we've got uh, people like Sandel, Goodhart, uh, you know, serious academics who have been looking at whether this focus on theoretical learning has been wise or not. Now, that's not to say that the future metaverse or these virtual worlds solve, solve these problems, but it, I think there are certain things that will come to this when we discuss the theory of learning in relation to the metaverse. I think we have an opportunity here perhaps of resetting things back towards learning by doing, by uh, even the social dimension within these worlds is very, very strong. So, uh, you know, I think there is an opportunity here, I, who knows? But I certainly think we shouldn't scoff at it. I think the negativity is overplayed. I think we should seriously consider this as an option in terms of learning. And it already is, of course. There are thousands of VR projects that are reasonably successful, make real here, do this day in, day out. Uh, and uh, who would deny that uh, the world is 3D? The world is not 2D. So why is so much learning in 2D? This is the mistake I think we've made in the past. We got stuck in a 2D over theoretical uh, universe, perhaps a metaverse swings us into 3D. So that's a good place to start. You've set us up well, let's get into it. So let's get into our first theorist. Jason Zeppel Lanier, born 1960, is an American computer scientist, visual artist, computer philosophy writer, technologist, futurist, and composer of contemporary classical music with a massive collection of rare musical instruments, really interesting instruments. See some of the photos of those. He's considered a founder of the field of virtual reality, born in New Mexico to Jewish parents. His mother was a survivor of the camps, which is strangely enough becoming a pretty consistent theme in uh, biogs of theorists in this series. Um, Lanier is a fascinating character and highly regarded. He's named in numerous lists of the world's top public intellectuals and influential thinkers. Interesting and confident, controversial ideas about the whole, about a whole raft of things. He doesn't buy Kurzweil's ideas about downloading our brains. Um, uh, I'm with him there. Against open source and Wikipedia, a resource upon which it has to be said we lean heavily in preparing this podcast. And his 2018 book was entitled 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Wish I could. Donald, I don't see you deleting your Twitter account anytime soon. No. But what does Lanier have to say? Is it Lanier or Lanier? What does he have to say about VR and the metaverse? Well, of course, I suppose, you know, is he a great global 
intellectual. I'm not wholly convinced by that, but I think I certainly think we should give him credit for being sometimes called, you know, the father of virtual reality. He was, you know, he really sort of coined the term, but he was really famous for being the first to set up a VR company. So, you know, his virtual reality company, that was in 1985. And I remember seeing him in the early 90s. And he he isn't really a learning theorist or even much of a theorist, I don't think, in terms of VR, since he wasn't involved in heavyweight research. Uh, and there are two angles to Lanier, I think. First is his early work, which was about the human dimension of VR. And this is really interesting because some of the early work, remember, this is 1980s. We had hardly any kit, any processing power. And he had full body suits and they were experimenting with not what your uh, avatar, as we're sitting here, John, would be, what it feels like or presence, but he was thinking about what it could be. In other words, you enter these other worlds, it's not that me and you enter it, so it changes us in a way. And he had this very famous experiment where he suddenly found, it was an accidental glitch in the coding actually, that he had turned into a sort of lobster type creature with six legs. And, but he actually stayed there because he found that so fascinating. You know, that notion that you could you could be something else, transform cognition, change your mind, what it felt like, ship your body and so on. So, and then that led to a lot of very interesting theorizing about what these future virtual worlds would be for good and bad. Now, on the bad side, he became a bit of a sort of really anti-big tech Facebook sort of guy ended up working for Microsoft, where he still works <laughs> rather oddly. So I'm not too sure about it. It was a bit duplicitous in many ways. But I think then he looked at, you know, micropayments. He was quite ahead of his time in looking for an alternative form of commerce on the internet, which allowed people to get their just rewards, you know, customer direct to seller, for example. And I think that's already happening. If you if you jazz around in, in VR chat, for example, there are people there who are you know, who are teaching people sign language or dancing or whatever. So you're getting that direct link between learners and teachers without anything in between. That whole disintermediation, democratization of learning is already happening in some of these worlds. And that was what he was constantly preaching in many of his books. Uh, he was also a musician. He had some really interesting ideas about creativity in alternative worlds. In other words, you could do things you can't do in the real world, not only in be slightly subversive or transgressive, which he talked about a lot, but also sheer, on, the, on the sheer possibilities in the arts for other forms of artistic uh, expression. So he was a founder of virtual reality, thought, was thinking deeply about it way back then in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, and still, still worth listening to, I think. Now to someone younger, less well-known earlier in his career, Guido Makransky. Uh, don't have a birth date for him, but he's definitely younger than Lanier. Um, not much biographical information available, but perhaps he's more focused on learning specifically than Lanier. He's professor of psychology at the University of Copenhagen, so a Dane and leader of the Virtual Learning Lab. His research interests are on learning within immersive environments, including virtual and augmented reality, multimedia learning, instructional design, that's a good one for us, motivation, self-efficacy, process measures of learning, presence training, psychometrics, and psychological and educational measurement. A lot of interest there, all within our field. Donald, you describe him as doing hardcore research on VR and learning. What are the outputs of that research for our inquiry here? Yeah, so when people ask me about any you know research in VR, this is the first name I mention. 
mainly, I think what's useful in the, in the virtual learning lab, remember this is learning in virtual reality, which is why it's relevant to us. I think first of all, he gives us a thing called the CAMEL for C-A-M-I-L, which, which stands for various things in cognition. In other words, he gives us a framework for learning around which the research he thinks should fit. And I think that's admirable. Uh, uh, because it can be a bit sort of spotty, you know, little pools of research as opposed to a coherent whole. But I like to, I'd like to first just go back before. He's, I mean, he's no, by no means the first to research this stuff. There are many, many people well before McCransky uh, have looked at this in detail. Uh, for example, if you just take two topics which McCransky focuses on, uh, and uh, they both come out the con the notion of context. So here we are, John. We're in Altspace VR. There is a context. We're sitting in a room with slides behind us. I can see a lamp over here. I can see you sitting on the sofa. Now, it's long been known that context really helps learning. So if you go back to Abernathy, this is 1940, his famous experiment where he took two groups of students. One group uh, studies on uh, at home, comes in and sits the exam. The other group studies at the table they're going to sit the exam in, in exactly the same room. When both groups sit the exam, the group that had learned in the context where they sit the exam had learned more. So context for actually matters in terms of recall. Some of this goes back to Thorndike or way back in the early century in transfer. So that's the Abernathy uh, uh, research. Now, if you jump to 19, let me get this right, 1975, you have, you have Gordon and Badley who do this amazingly, amazingly bold experiment where they take two groups, one on a beach and another group of, of scuba divers. They give them, they, they, they allow them to learn lists, I think it was 30 words. They then take half the people on the beach and put them in scuba outfits and go down and test them at the bottom of the ocean. They take half the scuba divers, bring them back onto the beach and test them on the words, and also test the people who learned the words on the beach and stayed on the beach, and the scuba divers who learned the words at the bottom of the ocean and stayed in the bottom of the ocean. So you've got four groups here. Who did best? Well, the two groups who did by far the best were the people who learned on the beach and stayed on the beach, and the scuba divers who learned in, at the bottom of the ocean and recalled at the bottom of the ocean. In other words, this was an experiment to show really radical changes in context, uh, which clearly help learning. Okay. Now, Gordon Day, he went on to do a really amazing, because context is also your emotions. In other words, your body internally, you know, there's extra intrinsic sort of context, but yeah. internally you also have emotional states. So he goes on to do this another amazing experiment, which I love, which is a bunch of medical students who he paid for, he had no shortage of volunteers for this, to get drunk. <laughs> and so he kept one group sober, one group drunk, and did the sort of scuba diving thing all over again with a sober and drunk groups, if you can see what I mean. Yes. And found that if you learn when you're sober, you'll recall well when you're sober. If you learn when you're drunk, you'll recall better when you're drunk. Yeah. And so we have this notion of, you know, there's, just to give you a flavor of some of the really good research that supports the idea that context and therefore context in VR or the metaverse does actually work. You know, there's some very good evidence. We've got decades and decades of this stuff showing that it, it's a positive. Let's jump forward to McCransky, though, yeah. uh, because McCransky really focuses down on hardcore VR. And of course, he's identifying the two main things, I think, in VR, which he does concrete research on, which is, what does this sense of presence, you know, this sense of being here? I mean, I've already forgotten what room I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you on this sofa across there. You know, I'm here in this virtual room, you know. Uh, and the bottom line is presence really matters. Uh, and it's not just personal presence. 
how aware you are of being in another place, its social presence, the presence you have around objects in this room and so on. Now, he, he very clearly identifies the, the positives around presence for learning because you need that to operate in these, in these virtual worlds. And the second big one is agency or self-agency as a learner or action, both of which are very strong because that emerges out of presence. So in research, he clearly identifies the fact that these two things are beneficial for learning. People will just feel that that works. He then climbs the ladder a little bit and looks at things like attention and motivation. And it's absolutely right that when you put people into VR, and I've been demoing VR since the very first days of the DK1 Oculus way back when, 2013, whatever. And people are amazed. You know, you get people screaming, falling over. They are absolutely astonished when they experience it for the first time. So that notion of attention, motivation, wonder, awe is absolutely there. The problem then, and this is where Makransky is so good, is he reflects back on the negatives. He said, well, this is all very well, but does it help you learn? That, um, you know, that raising of emotions. Yeah. Because what you tend to get are a lot of sort of novelty features in VR. And I was, people build worlds and people thrash around them and then the test of any learning took place. And of course it doesn't. And the big lesson from McCransky's research is that you have to, in a sense, deliberately construct learning experiences in virtual worlds to make them work. And don't concentrate too much on creating virtual worlds that are exact copies down to the exact pixel of the real world. That's not what matters. It's not physical fidelity that matters. It's psychological fidelity yeah. around decision making, whatever you're going to be doing in the virtual world. But so he, the, the, I like McCransky because he's, you know, he's just very honest about what will work and what is unlikely to work giving us, sort of firing a, a shot over our bow, saying that, you know, forget all this, you know, novelty stuff, making it fun. There's enough fun in VR just putting the headset on. Uh, what you sometimes have to do is calm people down and deliberately design the stuff so that it hits, it hits the mark. And then he explores individual variables, like a good scientist and researcher, uh, uh, you know, around what exactly you learn, how the role attention plays, uh, plays in learning in VR and comes up with very positive results. I think an interesting thing to add here, because it's relevant, is all the sweller cognitive overload stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, so I was gonna say, it sounds pretty familiar to some of the stuff we've covered in previous episodes, yeah, right. you know, cognitive yeah. load, the effective dimension and so on. Well, he thinks that the cognitive load thing is a real danger because you know you, your your senses yeah. in a sense are flooded by this three D environment that you're in. That's one area of cognitive load. But there's also when you start moving around, manipulating objects and so on. But that's why he said, "Don't worry about that. I will worry about it, but design to avoid it." You know, once you're in there, you've got your sense of presence. Keep things simple. It's the usual thing in learning. Less is almost inevitably more. So I think McCransky was one of those people who really, if you want to, if you want a really good guide on. Uh, uh, on the way forward and learning in, in, in VR and potentially the metaverse, then he's as good a researcher as any. And of course, there are many others. I don't want to give the uh, make the suggestion that he's the only one in the field, but I think the Virtual Learning Lab in the University of Copenhagen is amongst the, the best in the world. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Join in if you know the words. 
or have a cough, if you like. The, these these memorable lines of Freddie Mercury's Lisa Queen's, late Lisa Queen's, are quoted in the latest book by an ex-theorist, David J. Chalmers, born 1966. He's an Australian philosopher and cognitive scientist specialising in philosophy of mind and philosophy of language, professor of philosophy and neuroscience at New York University, as well as co-director of NYU's Centre for Mind, Brain and Consciousness. Born in Sydney, grew up in Adelaide. As a child, he experienced synesthesia, which is where sensory pathways of a different sort of relation, so that certain numbers will be felt to have a particular colour, for instance, or sounds are experienced as visual phenomena. Great description of this in Nabokov's autobiography, Speak Memory, which I'm reading at the moment. He was a noted synesthete. Chalmers is best known, though, for formulating the hard problem of consciousness. I'm reading his book, Donald's, I, I think we met, I mentioned earlier, it seems to me full of hard problems because I don't really read an awful lot of philosophy. Though superficially very engaging with copious pop culture references from Queen, as I mentioned, to The Matrix and Janet Jackson. So um, he's a really good writer, as you say. Donald has managed to convince me that even when I'm not in a simulation, I might still be in a simulation, a, a meta simulation. What's he add to our understanding of learning in VR? Yeah, well, I like David Chalmers because I think he's one of the few philosophers who are not so blue sky that they're not relevant to, to VR or the metaverse. But David Chalmers and Andy Clark, who's not far from us in Sussex University, in fact, we could walk from here to, to Andy, uh, Andy Clark's uh, office. They wrote a, a, a quite a famous paper around the extended mind. And let's get that out of the way because this is really important for learning theory, especially. The idea is that we have consciousness and consciousness was always regarded as just mental events as we know, that's our internal theater as you were. Uh, but they asked the very interesting question. If you're writing using a pen or a pencil, or indeed using a smartphone to retrieve knowledge, which may not be in your long-term memory, how different, is, is that actually an extension of consciousness itself? And then he came up with some very clever arguments in the original paper to show that logically, Actually, it's very difficult to argue against this. All the definitions we had around consciousness seem to fit this extension into the pen, the pencil, the typewriter, the smartphone. So you have this concept of the extended mind, which goes in. I mean, you can then take that. There are other papers around the extended collective mind, for example, out into the social universe around learning. So I think these, uh, you know, that's why he, he was so interesting. He is so interesting. And then he writes this amazing book called Reality Plus, and in the opening chapters, uh, that's the book you're referring to, John, is that right? Reality Plus? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Reality well, so, so in that, he, he actually spent some time in VR. You know, he talks about rec rooms and Beat Saber and, you know, he plays, he's, he's a gamer by background and really understands the whole VR experience thing, but applies his philosophical, his not inconsiderable philosophical mind to the problems around this. And I was, he asks whether virtual worlds are real or not. This may, this may seem like an odd question to people. Of course, they're not real. But once you finish the book, you, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to walk away from having read that book saying that they are not real. Because just like the extended mind argument, he's saying, if you remember your own consciousness in the real world is a bit of a show. It's a bit of a metaverse. We all live within our own solipsistic minds, our own metaverses, because consciousness obviously isn't the real world. It's a representation of the real world. Your brain builds it from data. Okay, so... If that's true, consciousness itself is a metaverse. So swapping out consciousnesses in other worlds are also going to be real worlds in a sense. 
And so he's making a, a He's making the claim here, it's bold, but it's interesting, that the metaverse or virtual worlds are just as real as existing worlds. And then, of course, there's a whole thing about whether the real world, another philosophical issue, separate but interesting, is the real world actually a metaverse in itself anyway as a simulation? And you've got Bostrom, a whole load of philosophers who have been arguing the case for that uh, for a decade or so. Quotes Bostrom quite a bit, doesn't he? Yes, I mean, Bostrom's almost unreadable. I have to say this book in multiple intelligence. I mean, he's not a good writer, but Bostrom wrote a very famous academic or philosophical paper on this, which Chalmers picks up on. And they both, I mean, they both come to the conclusion that there's a very high probability that it is a simulation, but there are, there are big problems around this proposition. For example, if it's a simulation, someone must have built it. So you're sneaking the God hypothesis in through the back door. So there are all sorts of philosophical problems with it, about it. But since we're talking about learning, it's probably not best not to get too tangential with this. Yeah. But I think reading Chalmers' uh, Reality Plus, getting to grips with his concept of the extended mind, they really have helped me understand what it, how learning is going to be affected in relation to consciousness in these worlds. Because once you see those bits of technology just as an extension of the mind, uh, then you see them as incredibly powerful learning opportunities. He quotes quite a few people who we, in his arguments, who we've covered so far already in uh, this series. Yeah. Uh, Descartes, of course, yeah, yeah. and the you know I, I, the cogito ergo sum. Yeah. Um, you know how can you know that you actually know anything yeah. and so on. That's part of his argument. But he also goes back to Plato and Socrates, yeah. but to Plato the the uh, allegory of the cave. Mm. Um, which I thought was really interesting. And, yeah. and it, it, it's Socrates who says in that, you know, how do you know you're in the cave, whether you're in the cave or outside the cave? Yeah. The real life is outside the cave and the, the poor dupes, you know, equivalent of being Neo in, in the Matrix, are inside the cave. Yeah. And it, it actually, what it made me think of is a couple of times in my life, I've, I've been a practicing, believing Catholic. Didn't last for long in either case. Um, because I just couldn't believe, hold the belief of six impossible things for breakfast. And it was just as if that whole reality or, you know, uh, supposed reality kept glitching and eventually I had to dump it. And so I, I thought that was interesting that in, in a lot of ways, we're never sure whether we're in a simulation or not, according to Chalmers. Um, and for many of us, we're not sure if we're inside the cave or outside the cave. You know, are we the poor duped atheists? Yeah. Or you know, or the poor dupes Catholics. Yeah. Well, Nietzsche famously famously said in Beyond Good and Evil that uh, you know Christianity is just Platonism for the masses. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So if you go back to Plato, of course, in the Republic, he has this notion that you know we what, he just asked that great philosophical question: What can we know? Is what we see real? These questions have been around for two and a half thousand years. So what do we know? Well, we don't. We know less than we think. And of course, he thinks that we're in this cave and that we don't see the light coming in from behind us. We see the shadows on the wall created by the candle between us and the and the wall. And then he asks the question: Is it is it is it good to be stuck in the cave? <laughs> and then that's why the Plato's theory of forms arises. No, mathematics is the way out of this. We can prove through science and mathematics that the cave is illusionary. Very interesting. You know, there is another world behind the real world. This, of course, then you have Descartes, who you mentioned, he's like 17th century. Descartes goes even further and says, OK, what do we really know? Well, not much. It could all be a dream. Uh, we might all, everything we're seeing might be a complete sort of simulation in a way. 
uh, it could go further than that. There may be an evil demon, a sort of godlike figure who's just putting on this show for us, like the Truman Show, the movie. And then the evil demon is a very interesting hypothesis because that really pushes us into this sort of thought experiment about the fact that we may know absolutely nothing. And then, of course, Descartes goes, hold on, hold on. We know one thing for certain here, that we exist. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. That brings him back to certainty. And then he rebuilds his world after this amazing sceptical exercise in demolishing everything to illusion, he rebuilds it back up to the existence of God through the ontological argument or something. But these are, this is this fascinating stuff. You know, it's not as if we haven't thought about virtual worlds. We've been thinking about it for two and a half thousand years. Absolutely. And then, of course, you get, as you rightly pointed, there are other more in, really interesting people beyond that. You have, and it even comes through in popular culture, you know, Neo in the Matrix that you mentioned, actually has a copy of Baudrillard's uh, Simulations in Simulcra. In the, in the movie, you know, there are, there are no casual references to quite deep thinkers around this issue in our popular culture. So that was a good link, Donald, to yeah. our next uh, theorist, Jean Baudrillard. Yeah. 1929 to 2007 an ex-theorist, and he was an absolute rock star of philosophy from France, a country where it's believed that the correct place for a philosopher is on primetime TV, an opinion which to the average Brit has to be said is completely inexplicable, like a, a lot of other things about French culture. Born in Reims, Reims or Reims, the, the son of a gendarme, he was influenced by pataphysics early on. Um, and that brings us to the, brings in a Beatle lyric, um, Maxwell Silver Hammer, Joan was quizzical, blah, 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 blah studied bat pataphysics, um, and so on. He was a sociologist, philosopher, and cultural theorist, best known for his analysis of media, contemporary culture, and technological communications, though he drifted between academic disciplines, starting off uh, teaching literature, in fact, German literature, before he moved towards sociology, and he eventually moved away from that as well. And in the end, he rather floated free of any discipline at all. Similarly, he was associated with postmodernism and post-structuralism, but eventually attacked both. He was a fan of Monteverdi and the Velvet Underground, and I'm with him on both of those. His writing portrays societies in search of a sense of meaning that remains consistently elusive. And he saw simulation as a seductive thing. Because of our inability to make meaning of the world, I've got this right. We are drawn towards a simulated version of reality that equals hyper-reality, picked up by Umberto Eco, uh, among others, who, who wrote about uh, Disneyland and um, modern phenomena such as that in, in the context of hyper-reality. Donald, it has to be said, Baudrillard was one of an absolutely stellar generation of French philosophers, including Deleuze, Lyotard, Foucault, Derrida, Derrida, and Lacan, some of whose work would surely also be relevant to this topic. But why have you singled out Baudrillard in particular? Well, some of those names, I mean, you know, all those names out of the postmodern Hall of Fame, if you want to call yeah. it that. Uh, you know, you've got Foucault, Lyotard, Derrida. I actually had lunch with Derrida, claim of fame there if you want. Uh, a, a many moons ago. So these are often, you know, oft quoted, very rarely read people, to be honest. You know, whenever I come across people who quote them, I often ask, can you, can you name a book by Derrida? Have you read anything? But, yeah. Very, wow. yeah. Well done, John. Good, good stuff. Yeah, I think you're the first I've met in about five years who's actually read anything concrete. In this. Oh, the other person who's read any of his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. But Baudrillard isn't really part of this group and separated himself from it. In fact, he was a massive critique. They were 
quite often at that time there were a lot of sort of communist Maoist leaning intellectuals in France and he wrote a scathing attack on Marxism. He thought that Marx and this is relevant for the metaverse thing. He thought that uh, that we had been that Marx had got consumerism wrong. He had missed out consumerism. In other words, the working middle classes uh, became uh, worked, but also began to buy the fruits of their own labour. And so you didn't have it, the absolute separation of production from capital. He wrote a brilliant book on this and another brilliant book on consumerism and in a negative way in, it, it, in that it was all consuming. And this led him to reflect on media, of course, and by media, he you know, just died in 2007, but he was just into the internet as it were. But what he, what he saw rather interestingly was this concept of hyper-reality, in other words, he very famously said that the Gulf War didn't exist. And what he meant by that was not that it didn't happen, but that our view of the Gulf War didn't really exist. It was mediated by, uh, by and large television at that point. And that's, that's grown enormously. Almost everything we see now is mediated by technology. Now, Baudrillard does something quite interesting. He speculates here. He said, first of all, you get this notion, uh, this is in his book, Simulcron Simulations, in 1981. So quite a long time ago. He says, first of all, that you get this process uh, where things are increasingly masked, you know, reality is masked and perverted in a way by all these intermediaries. We don't really see the real any longer. We get masks off the real. OK, and then the, the real, in a sense, becomes increasingly remote and absent, just like I'm sitting here on this sofa. I've completely forgotten what room I am in, in even what town I'm in almost. I really am here talking to you right now. It's a, it's a, it's a weird sense of the reality has almost disappeared on us. Now, that de-anchoring, that you're now in another world, you know, another universe, you know, metaverse, as meta means above, like metaphysics yeah. uh, and so on. But the other thing is verse, totality, universe and so on. But actually, his point here is what happens in between here. You get this gradual process of slipping into these virtual worlds and you sort of almost remain there. Even in the real world, we spend so much time on social media and in these other virtual worlds that we sometimes forget what reality is. That was his point. And he is just a brilliant social commentator on this. And we would do well to read Baudrillard, I think, if we wanted to really understand where we're heading here. Now, he is a, he's nervous about this. Yeah. He thinks that there are some inherent dangers. I happen to think he's wrong here. But I think he's more right on, on being the philosopher of consumerism. I think that's a bigger danger uh, in terms of it flooding. You know, suddenly we're buying all these virtual things and we live in a world of scam and scammers with cryptocurrencies. And I think that's why I'm incredibly nervous about Web 3.0 in relation yeah. to the metaverse. But uh, as we've seen what's happened with NFTs, the collapse of that market and so on. But nevertheless, if there's one philosopher, one might, contemporary philosopher, although he's no longer with us, that one might want to read around uh, virtual worlds, it would be Baudrillard. And significance for learning? Well, of course, he's not really a learning theorist as such. Uh, and uh, the same is true of uh, Plato was a learning theorist. We covered him, of course, uh, before. Yep. But I think the significance is what, you know, we're spending increasing amounts of time in these other world, worlds, worlds. A way of getting us back to being human is, I think, one application above all in any future metaverse, and that's education and learning. If there's one opportunity we have to stop us being completely consumed by consumerism or consumed 
by novelty or gaming or entertainment. It's going to be by doing something that's a real social good. And so if, and I hope, I think it will happen, if learning becomes what used to be called the killer app in the metaverse, wouldn't that be a great thing? In other words, we would be spending times in these virtual worlds eh, to the benefit of our own minds and consciousness. You know, it's a place where we really would learn about other cultures, other places, of course, and I mean that quite literally. You can go to literally any other place on the planet. You can be in any other place. You can be in any culture. You will meet other people from other cultures. So I think there are opportunities here looking way down the line for education to free itself from, you know, the rather, to take an average uh, university class now, is going to be a pretty upper middle class, rich, white group of people by and large. Uh, is that good for learning? Is that the model we want to stick with? Or do we want to free it? You know, they say that knowledge wants to be free. That's already happened in the internet. You just look it up on Wikipedia, whatever, you know. Knowledge is now free. Uh, freed us from the tyranny of place and the tyranny of time. We can now find out anything we want at any place, from any place, at any time. What if education would be exactly the same? What if education could be free at in any place, virtually, at any time, from anywhere? I think that would be a great leap forward. Now, you see some of these things, the early experiments here around meta-universities are interesting and so on, but I think we need a much bigger vision for learning and the Metaverse, which is why all these people are relevant. We have to think big about this stuff. So moving along now, Mark Zuckerberg, 1984, he was born. Our next theorist needs no introduction, so I'm not going to give him one. Other than to say, as we all know, that he was the Harvard dropout who co-founded Facebook and became the world's youngest self-made billionaire at age 23, a figure of towering influence, and really the reason why, if we're to be honest, we're discussing something called the Metaverse today. He is now the chairman, chief executive officer, controlling shareholder of Meta Platforms. Oops, I seem to be giving an introduction. Donald reading the Chalmers book, where he describes Descartes' famous thought experiment that resulted in the cogito. I wondered whether Zuckerberg and his vision for the metaverse might not seem to many to be the evil demon envisioned by <laughs> Descartes, who controls the simulation we're all already living in, a big simulation called Facebook and social media. I mean, he is such a demonized figure that you know he, he almost has that kind of status of a demiurge, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, there's something about people our age, you know, that really hate really successful young people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> But, you know, give him his due, he created social media platform, which is free. And all sorts of people on, uh, on Facebook tell me how bad it is. And you wonder why they're there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's voluntary. You know, don't use it. Uh, but there are, you know, a couple of billion people on Facebook. He struck a chord here. I use it to communicate with my 87-year-old uh, father in Scotland and have for years because he's 500 miles away from me. Keeps me in touch with my family. I find it incredibly useful, as many people do. You know, going back and uh, discovering old friends from school and so on and so forth. Anyway, that's uh, put that to one side. I think I think the importance of Zuckerberg here is that he is the progenitor of this. He has taken the biggest gamble of his life, which is to put ten billion into a vision, rebrand his company as Meta, 
And fair enough, you know, uh, this is how the world progresses. We don't all stick around doing the same thing. You know, if I look at Apple on the other hand, you know, and I look at the Apple Watch, which is grown in at the size of a clock, another Apple phone that's going to cost me nearly a grand. Is, is that really what I, I admire in the tech world? Or do I admire someone who's made a big, bold move into things which I agree with, virtual reality, possibly the metaverse? And Zuckerberg's an interesting guy in terms of the learning side because he's always had an interest in this. And if you look at the Chenin and Zuckerberg uh, philanthropic work, I mean, he spent tens, hundreds of millions in, in voluntary donations in schools in the US. Uh, real schools, you know, not virtual schools, as it were. And there's another interesting angle here, which is he slotted 150 million, 150 million in one fund and gave it to 10 universities in the States. But then these are called metaversities. And the experiment I've been following quite closely, first of all, the ones that were chosen were not the big boys. They're not the Harvards or MITs. He chose uh, these land universities. These were universities set up in the late 19th century in rural areas, teaching vocational skills like agricultural skills and so on. Oh. Three of the 10 are black only colleges. Others have a long history in online learning because they're set, they're situated in rural environments. So there's a very simple, you know, they're very, and this I've always wanted to see. I got fed up with the MOOC build, you know, where it was just the wealthy universities that were pandered to because they had spare money. And then the colleges, you know, you, you know, the vocational side, the learning by doing side got almost completely ignored. Certainly in this country with a debacle that was future learned. So I think I am looking forward to the results and the results are already promising. Now, I think there's one thing that's odd. All of these 10 metaversities have been given out of a fund of $150 million. Money, first of all, to build their digital twins. In other words, an exact replica of the college. Now, I was initially a bit suspicious about this. It was a bit second life-ish, you know, let's build a lecture theatre and all sit around while somebody lectures. And that's not really the point, is it? If we're going to do things well in this new world, new context, we have to have new pedagogies. That's just crystal clear to me. So why build a lecture theatre? And they all have, of course, because that's the pedagogy they know. Nevertheless, the other stuff that's really interesting, some of them have already been experimenting for some time in virtual labs, for example, in STEM subjects, you know, whether it's biology labs. Some of them have been doing history courses where you really go to Gettysburg and you see, you know, you see uh, Lincoln giving the address. So I think there are ample opportunities for real exploration here in these projects, and I'm following them very carefully and been impressed so far. So I think let's not, I think the danger is that we allow our negativity to sort of chop all these people off at the knees before they've even started, you know? Yeah. Everybody wants to kill the metaverse already, but they don't know what it is. They haven't thought much about it. They haven't read any of the research. They haven't read anything about it. So why be so negative about something you know so little of? I think we need a bit of humility about this now, perhaps. Well, we're thinking about it here. We are. We're in it. <laughs> <laughs> So our next theorist, Robert Nozick, 1938 to 2002, was an American philosopher, Harvard professor, and president of the American Philosophical Association. He's best known for his 1974 book, Anarchy, State and Utopia. From a Jewish family in Brooklyn, educated at Columbia, Princeton and Oxford University as a Fulbright scholar. At one point, he was a member of the YPSL, the official youth arm of the Socialist Party of America, which I mention because it's interesting when you consider how widely reviled he came to be on the left. 
who yeah. see his book as a source text for libertarian conservatives. I first came across Nozick through a podcast, naturally, uh, an episode of the UK historian David Runciman's History of Ideas podcast, where he gives a very thoughtful appraisal of Nozick's work. Nozick is certainly anti-statist, but his ideas about alternative forms of government, which he believed ought to be local, experimental and diverse, don't fall easily into line with today's passionately contested binaries. In fact, what they remind me most of is when I was at Sussex University back in the 70s, there were quite a lot of libertarian socialists around. In fact, they, yeah. they, they were very early supporters of the punk movement um, in, in Brighton, uh, down at the Resource Centre. And these libertarian socialists wanted um, governance to be kind of very local and for it to be divided on a decided on a local level, very much into kind of citizens' councils. And Nozick seems to be quite interested in that sort of stuff. Although, you know, big ticket, he's a, a libertarian. In the course of that exposition, Runciman, in the podcast that I mentioned, Runciman mentions a red pill, blue pill thought experiment of Nozick's, which brings us back, of course, into the, the Matrix territory. Some things will come up again and again, won't they? Like the Matrix, <laughs> Westworld, all the time it is in this territory. Donald, I suspect that that's at least part of the reason you've included, included Nozick here. But why not tell yeah. us what, what, what he has to add? Yeah, because I am a libertarian socialist, so that, that's my line uh, on politics, really. And I have always liked Nozick. Uh, and he was the bete noir at the time when I was studying philosophy at university, and that was because John Rawls was the great hero, yeah. the, uh, you know, who was the man of the left, uh, the, the pure rationalist veil of ignorance. You could use reason to solve these moral problems around rights and distribution and so on. But anarchy... Uh, Anarchist State and Utopia is, a, is an absolutely brilliant book, and uh, it's relevant in terms of the, the Metaverse member. This goes. This book was written in 1974, guys, the that beginning of that punk sort of time, really, John. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was the year I came to Sussex. Yeah, right, great. So, yeah, the year I went to university, and the, it, it was freshly minted, that book. And I remember reading it, and it was like, you know, it was a hard read for people from the left. Uh, because of his, uh, you know, his arguments against the state, but his arguments were also a bit like Baudrillard's against the the yeah. the danger of, uh, you know, uh, you know the danger of a sort of dystopian overreach on this stuff. But he, it's mostly the, we're really discussing them today because of a thought experiment, which is not uncommon in philosophical circles. In other words, if you're going to pose a philosophical question and a potential solution, think of think of a way of framing it as a thought experiment. So his thought experiment is what he called the experience machine. So I give you a choice, John, this is red blue pill choice. Yeah. I say you can have a life right now of absolute bliss. Uh, but if you make that choice, you will forget your previous life, you won't know that it ever existed. Would you say yes to that proposition here and now? What would you say, John? No. Exactly. Now, that's what most people say. I want the pain. I want the angst. <laughs> well, this is it. Now, what what he was uncovering was the fact that you, we as human beings, to be human is actually to like the real, to see the real as messy, to see things as challenging, to see the worth in life, meaning in life as overcoming difficulties, not to live in a in a sort of queer, a drug somatic sort of state of happiness. And this is why I uh, will be discussing this at some time, no doubt, which is why I'm dead against those, the Seligman positive psychology 
thing. Do you know, it's that one-sided view that, every, that happiness should be the driver, that pure utilitarianism that also comes out of Mill, comes out of Bentham and Mill, and was a big streak uh, in, philosoph in philosophy from the 19th century onwards. I'm dead against this. And I'm dead against it because I read my Nozick, you know, and I, I and I made that choice, and I go, no, he's absolutely spot on here. Now Nozick then actually, interestingly, it was reflecting on VR and similar. <laughs> he's he's actually said some things about this, which is interesting. Yeah. And he says the same is going to be the case. Don't worry about this notion of us being sucked into an alternative metaverse, another universe, because people don't. Act, people also want authenticity. They want the real life. They want pain now. Where I disagree with them on this is that actually in these other worlds, you know, and once it gets to high fidelity, high levels of realism, we spend a lot of time in those worlds, which I think we will, then it it sort of starts to digital twin all those things. It starts to mirror the pain <laughs> and the obstacles and the challenge. It's not a world of bliss. Mm -hmm. And you only have to go into VR chat or rec rooms or something for five minutes to, to, to see that, yeah, it's far from being a world of bliss. It's actually quite messy, just like the re real world, if not messier. Well, absolutely. I hate, hate to bring up Second Life as a, as a, as a reference. Yeah. But, um, you know, I spent a certain amount of time there uh, at one point, and it was full of just as much messiness as, as the world and, and new species of messiness as well, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah, but I think what's interesting, even in the early experiments around VR, uh, you know, as we're sitting here now, I can switch on a bubble uh, within uh, within Altspace VR, which gives me personal space. You can't cannot come into my personal space then, or your avatar would just disappear when it start, starts coming to the bubble. Or oh. if, if, God forbid, John, you wanted to sexually harass me, <laughs> then that would be difficult. So no, don't worry. <laughs> so I think we're sitting here, you know, in many ways, we're, we're starting to solve those moral problems. Now, that's a difficult problem to solve in the real world. We don't walk around the streets with a great big bubble uh, uh, surrounding us so that other people can't enter that bubble. Uh, but there, there are perhaps solutions in the virtual world that make it an acceptable social space without some of those dangers, yeah. but with enough danger to make it interesting. You know what, to wipe, it's just, this is why knows it's so important. The authentic real world is not wor a world that's free from pain or discomfort or oddities or weirdness. An authentic world is full of that stuff. That's what makes it interesting. Yeah. You want it to be safe for people, but we can define what those boundaries are in a more satisfactory way, perhaps, in the virtual world than we do in the real world. He was in favour of, um, of of life of governance being experimental, small scale, yes. experimental, and diverse. That really you needed to try a lot of different things out in different places with different groups of people, that's, in, that's in order to kind of to to progress and evolve and ar arrive at, at, at what the good is. Well, hence the word anarchy in the title of the book, anarchy state utopia. You know, he 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 he, he thinks it's foolish to regard any of these things as utopian, and that what one must do is have the sort of Popperian ability to experiment and change your mind. There has to be corrective feedback mechanisms all the time to to get progress in politics, in moral, moral life, philosophical thought, and in entertainment and in learning. And I think this is important. The relevance of Nozick to learning in the metaverse is to have these, you know, this is why I like uh, Illich. Illich in his book, one of my favorite books on, on learning and education, De-Schooling Society, people very rarely quote the second half of the book where he dis 
Gussie's the web of learning. This idea that learners and teachers get together or learn from each other, and that at one day there will be a web of learning that frees them from the frees us from the tyranny of institutional learning schools and universities and so on. And that was a that's a great book, entirely relevant to what we're talking about because you can see that sort of happening. I mean, even in the two D world of the internet, you you know there are a hundred million people due, using Duolingo. Either, uh, I doubt if we're, I, you know, just look at the catastrophic failure of kids in UK schools trying to learn French, German, Italian. Three, four, five, six years, they can barely ask for a cup of coffee. Yeah. It's not the way to teach a language, which is why Duolingo, when it comes alive in a 3D world, where you really can have immersive learning and speak to other native speakers and so on, then I think some of these areas of learning can spring alive and will be superior to classrooms. And Nozick talks a lot, a lot about that freewheeling, you know, that let's experiment, let's try these things out before killing them stone dead, just using reason. You know, if we just sit there on our laptop and go, the metaverse is dead because I say it's going to be dead and I don't like it. That's the big mistake for him. He is a sort of anarchist at heart. So time to sum up. Okay. How can we sum up the, the you know, this, this immense topic that we've opened up here, these not, not just one world, but many worlds we seem to have opened up. This is the first time we've tackled a topic also that points so resolute, resolutely towards the future, mm -hmm. which is yet to be written. And perhaps that's why it's evolved so much philosophy and even straight into areas of sociology and politics. Donald, where is all this going? Well, I think at the moment, I think there's some really fascinating things happening in the VR world. And so, you know, our friends here at Make Real, they, they more than anybody in the UK and, uh, will tell you that this experimentation that Nozick was pointing towards is already with us and happening. And of course, most of the things that people get involved in when they look at VR, virtual worlds, those proto-metaverses, you know what I call them that, are learning by doing type tasks, you know? It's why you have so many, much of this stuff in healthcare and practical tasks or in construction. I myself, way back in the day, I remember, and this is 1980s, remember, we were using 3D worlds on laser vision, you know? We did one where we built a 3D uh, French town for learning French. You wandered around the French and bought, bought stuff for a picnic and so on. Uh, I did another one with a training centre where you went into a training centre. So yeah. I've been doing this for a long time. Watch philosophers on TV, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, the, you know, beyond that, then we, we, you know, we, you know, then got involved in, you know, when you buy, I remember even with the first DK kit, which is very primitive in terms of resolution and so on. I remember, you know, people, you know, like screaming with delight when they entered these worlds. So I think we know a lot more now because of the research I've mentioned from McCransky and others about the role presence has in learning. This is important. So there's the role the learner has in these virtual worlds, which allows you to do things that are perhaps dangerous or difficult or risky in the real world or even impossible, you know, like go down to molecular level. They're doing that in some of the meta-university chem chemistry courses where you're playing around at the molecular level or going up to the International Space Station or going to another planet or whatever. In other words, the important thing about learning is you can be anywhere and do anything that frees the mind. So the the position of the learner and presence and action, it's important to get to grips with if this if you're going to design good learning experiences and people really are starting to do that well we're learning a lot about what works and more importantly what doesn't work then you got to types of learning you know that this is important we have to sort of almost fall back on a sort of taxonomy of learning here what are these worlds like 
And it's surprising, actually, because one of the things that may be missed here is the sort of social dimension here. You know, me and you, we're chatting here uh, as we normally, actually, we normally do these podcasts on Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in a funny sort of way, I feel even more presence in this virtual world than I do in Zoom. Yeah. And you know, I see your hand movements, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm reacting to you sitting right across from, this, from me on the sofa here. But I think the social dimension is really interesting in terms of all these things around team building, social skills. Uh, I think we have at last a real opportunity for doing things. Future of work is interesting. If work does increasingly become remote and the huge data set that's just been released from the Department of Labor uh, in the US shows that uh, about 60 after COVID, about 60% of people did not go back to work, but that then they started dribbling back, but it stopped and plateaued off at 30%. So 30% of workers who do that sort of work are now working from home. It's a big change, you know. Similar There's, stats in the UK from the FT, I think. Yeah. yeah. So if that's going to be true, then obviously the 2D world of Zoom that's a bit clunky and a bit awkward will be replaced by this sort of experience. I'm sure. I don't see why that wouldn't happen. Once we get, you know, the next uh, headsets, we'll have face tracking, eye tracking, the communication will be that much more natural. And we're starting to research this and get some really interesting findings from that as well. So I think we're on the verge of starting to explore many things that we can do online that we could never do before because this 3D virtual world is opening up to us through VR. Now, you asked another question, which is where the metaverse is going, and that's really a sort of... Uh, a commercial and political issue. So commercially, this is rather unusual. The internet did not come from the huge tech giants. It actually came out of the university and military complex in the US. Government money. Uh, uh, with government, that's right. That combination of universities, government and private sector that was unique. In your face, no <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well, it was the interesting thing was Vannevar uh, uh, Bush, who set all that up, deliberately included the private sector. He, he put those three plates spinning because he thought it was too dangerous to leave anyone on their own. They would spend all the money and not, not be focused on output. Right. So in a sense, it was a sort of anarchy that we didn't, we didn't pick up in Europe. And hey, presto, we don't have any big tech companies in Europe. <laughs> I wonder why. Uh, but, but what's interesting here is the way in which it's going in relation to these big tech companies. So you have Facebook, who put $10 billion into the project. $10 billion. Uh, We have Microsoft, who are almost, almost perfectly set up for this. They just bought Activision, a massive 3D games company. They have HoloLens, so they've got the AR covered. They have Azure. We're sitting in a Microsoft-created world here, Altspace VR. Uh, we have other people like NVIDIA. And the CEO of NVIDIA thinks that the GDP of the virtual universe, the metaverse, will be greater than that of the real universe. That's an interesting statement. He really does believe that. And he may be right. Uh, then we have the other tech players who are in here, and we've just had the foundation or the formation, I should say, of the metaverse uh, discussion uh, forum around standards. So it's a metaverse standards forum. And they're not setting the standards, but they've brought uh, 1,500 people have signed up for this and they've just released the first report. That's looking at issues like governance, uh, interoperability, importantly, because that's what it's about. For the first time, really, we may have the, all the tech giants in the world coming together because they've all agreed that this open sort of world is what will make it sing, so that you can move between places on the metaverse. So let's see how that goes. I think... Uh, I think all the stars are starting to align towards this really happening. 
when? Well, some people think we already have it. The chief, in fact, you know, chief executive of Microsoft says, "Well, it's already here. What you're talking about?" And he's, he's sort of right. I made that point earlier. Others think it's just a few years away. Others, five to ten years. Other, others just. I think it's chief executive Google said it's just in the future, <laughs> which is really hedging your bets. Uh, but I certainly think things are being aligned in the right way that make it, in my view, almost inevitable. Well, on that note. I think we have to draw to a close. We've we've opened up a, a, a whole world of interest, I think, for people to continue to explore uh, more than one world as well. But it's time for us to go back to the scare quotes, real world, have a cup of tea or a, a drink or tea or whatever, and um, it will be as if none of this had ever happened. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much, Donald. Shall we wave everybody goodbye? Jazz hands? Oh, jazz hands. Pick up your controllers. Try not to bang into the mic. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. Sound editors by Isaac Peacock. Social media by Jay Curtis. Graphics by David O'Connor. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and we'd like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. Next time, Donald and John discuss the impact on learning of one of the greatest intellectual upheavals of the last two centuries, Darwin's theory of evolution. Join us, won't you?